0: I wanted to create an office for net zero delivery um, to be able to really focus on the fact that if you're a local authority, you're having to go to the Department of Transport, you're having to go to the Department of Defra, you're having to go to the Department of Local Government for for, for endless pots of funding that's often very short termist. And and so reforming this this view by which we would actually have a, a plan, a roadmap set out, And actually, again, getting net zero away from the Whitehall is really important. So having that office of net zero delivery was something I really wanted to, as a core priority.
1: Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. My name is Alex Cameron. I'm the founder of Decarb Connect, and I feel very privileged to be here today with the Right Honourable Chris Skidmore, who is Member of Parliament here in the UK for the Kingswood constituency and has served there since 2010, I think. I hope I've got that right. And... For the context of our podcast, um, Chris has brought experience to us from being a former energy minister for the UK and more recently the chair of our net zero review and has been a very clear voice on the historic opportunity that is offered to the UK and to other countries by net zero. We're going to talk a little about the net zero review itself and its 129 recommendations We're also going to talk about the concept or potential shape that a green special relationship could take. And more generally just get Chris's views on the UK's role in uh, climate leadership as well. So Chris, welcome. Thank you very much for agreeing to come and talk with me.
0: Thanks, Alex. Looking forward to it.
1: So we will kick off with the question that I ask everyone, which is to just understand how you've arrived at this point in time, whether it's a personal story or professional kind of course of action that brought you to this point where you're working on climate and net zero. What, what's been your story, Chris? How have you come to this point?
0: Well, yeah, thanks very much. You're absolutely right. I've been a Member of Parliament uh, for the past 13 years now, uh, and I served in a number of uh, ministerial uh, departments uh, before leaving government in February 2020. Um, And I had the opportunity of being in what was then the Department for Business, uh, Enterprise, Innovation Skills, BASE, as the Science, uh, Research and Universities uh, Minister in 2019. Uh, And then the then Energy Minister, uh, Claire Perry, she's now Claire O'Neill, had to take a leave of absence. And uh, I thought, this is my one chance to get to attend the Cabinet. Uh, And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. Maybe I could ask the chief whip, um, Greg Clark, the secretary of state, maybe I could stand in for Claire. And I became the interim energy minister at the time. Uh, And it was just at that moment um, in summer 2019, when then the the UK decided to become the first G7 country to sign net zero into law. So I actually was the energy minister responsible uh, for taking net zero through the house of commons. I signed it into law uh, on the 27th of June 2019. And also a couple of weeks later, I managed to successfully land our bid for COP26 on the back of having become the first G7 country to sign net zero into law. But if you'd asked me sort of five years before, yeah, what's net zero, I wouldn't have had a clue. Uh, so yeah, it was it was serendipitous. Uh, but ever since then, and ever since leaving government, I've taken upon myself really to try to defend net zero uh, not just as obviously being essential for tackling the climate crisis, but as that economic opportunity and to really fight against those who want to delay, who claim there's going to be a cost and a burden, which I see as a false narrative. Uh, and thanks to COP26, you know, we've seen 90% of the world's GDP now commit to net zero. So as far as I'm concerned, this is the future, uh, and I've ended up in this place pretty much by accident, but I'm determined to now spend... rest of my career, sort of focusing on on making it happen.
1: An amazing point in time to sort of become so well acquainted with climate policy and and so forth. And as you say, we were the the first G7 country to commit. What's your sense, when you look back to that period in time, which seems so long ago, mostly thanks to this weird time warp of COVID in the middle, but what was it do you think that really drove us to lead on that at that point in time? And then what's your sense of where we stand now? What's changing? And obviously, there are changes, both in policy and attitudes across the country, and so forth. So yeah, give me your view on on what drove it then and where we are now.
0: I think, obviously, post the Paris Agreement uh, in 2015, the UK sort of was increasingly emerging as the leader in the G20 on decarbonising the furthest fastest. And that had obviously happened because we'd taken an early decision to decarbonize our electricity system to get off of coal. And I think that leadership, you know, everyone was then sort of looking to us saying, how have you managed to you know, reduce your coal consumption by 40, 50% over the last seven years? Uh, and and you know, we'd, we'd really demonstrated that uh, we were first in class. Uh, and we also set up the Powering Past Coal Alliance and had begun to demonstrate international leadership in in other areas of climate uh, diplomacy, that then it made it to a natural point that we should take net zero forward. And obviously, on the back of the uh, Climate Change Act, uh, with that framework in place with carbon budgets, we are really well placed to be able to have the governance structure and the accountability mechanism to be able to meet our carbon uh, commitments that we made at Paris. So in a way, we'd already done a lot of the hard work in in framing the the, the possibility. I think that in that sort of 2019 period, there was also this sort of movement that happened. You know, Trump had pulled out of the Paris Agreement a couple of years before. Uh, A number of councils were declaring uh, climate emergencies. The UK government declared a climate emergency just a couple of months before net zero, uh, it was this sort of sense of that there was the school strikes with greta thunberg that this was a moment uh, to act and i think the the uk government possibly in a sort of post brexit world decided that this was a, an area of focus that the uk could demonstrate you know international leadership and also you know stand on its own two feet you know away from its sort of former role within the european union
1: so we talked a little about the kind of the roots of why it was in that moment in time, the UK, you know, came to show and and really push forward with that leadership. More recently, there's been, you know, a lot of, a lot of discussion in the media and in all sorts of groups about, you know, are we backing away from our targets? Are we backing away from anything in particular? I wondered what's your feel for that? Like you sensing a real material change in the leadership tone or, is it is it more around just communication and messaging? So let, let's start there. What well, you know, how how you know how real, how material is that change to you right now?
0: So I think on on the the reality versus image point, um, the reality is is that the government is sort of still committed to a, a number of uh, decarbonisation projects that actually it's advanced them in, in the recent announcements. So like the boiler upgrade scheme, uh, the amount available went up to £7,500, which saw a record interest in people getting involved in maybe installing a, a heat pump. Uh, actually, some of the targets around the end date to gas boilers, new gas boilers, um, they've just basically quantified the acceptance exemptions uh, around 20%. And that was always going to happen at some stage. so i sort of feel the government's almost guilty of, of green hushing, of actually sort of hiding their climate uh, commitments and what they're getting on with. but the really damaging thing is that you know image is also reality and this has sent sort of shockwaves around the climate world that the uk has decided to sort of create this New narrative around net zero of trying to sort of go a bit slower, uh, and then with it, frame it as if net zero is a cost, uh, a burden to households. That then somehow the government is on the, the side of hard working taxpayers by making sure that they don't have to pay as much. And that was never the case. So, it's, it's it, what is so frustrating is the rhetoric is extremely divisive. It, it potentially breaks the what was it, the 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 compact we've had between political parties to work together on 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 climate policy, which was all what the climate change act was all about to start with? You know, the Conservatives backed Labour when they were in opposition, urged them to go further. So I do see this as a a, a tragic departure. Uh, and even if the government is is getting on with the job, and you know there might be a Labour government in a years time, so I imagine the civil service is sort of very carefully balancing, you know, the government's commitments going forwards the rhetoric is awful. Uh, and yeah, I can't condone it in, in any way, um, because ultimately, this is potentially putting people off making the transition themselves.
1: Mm. I think it's um, uh, a kind of um, a clash of timelines and cycles in a way, which is really interesting, because we work a lot with industrials, obviously, the the industrial mentality for a cycle of investment is decades. It's not it's not even five years or three years like a private equity house might consider. It's, it's decades of time. And obviously, a government's cycle time is is very different. And as we're moving towards the general election, it just feels like we've entered this weird kind of twilight world where, you know, the, the way that different groups view cycles of time and activity is just totally at odds with each other. Um yeah. But let, let's talk a little more about the net zero review and, and sort of take that as an opportunity to look at some of the uh, gaps that you think maybe we have in our plans or opportunities and so forth. So, as I said at the beginning, for for those um, outside of the UK, because the podcast has an international audience, you, you led this net zero review and reported back on it in January of this year. And my understanding is it took in like nearly 2000 responses yeah. from yeah. across yeah. the UK. So just for for international listeners, just give a little bit of context. And then I'd be interested if we could start with your sense of what surprised you during that exercise, you know, anything unexpected that came up, and then we can move on uh, to some of the kind of takeaways for you.
0: Sure. So yeah, I was asked by the UK government in September last year to conduct an independent uh, review of of net zero and the commitment that i you've been personally responsible in signing into law as energy minister. So I was delighted to take this forward. I was only given three months uh, to conduct the review. Um, but in the end, it, it turned out to be the largest engagement exercise on net zero, I think ever conducted in the UK. And the plan was in the terms of reference was how can we do net zero in a way that is, is pro uh, business, pro growth, uh, one in which will deliver net zero in a more affordable and efficient manner. And I produced a 340-page report, Mission Zero, which you know lends itself to exactly what we were talking about earlier, that you need long-term programmatic approaches to deliver on policy. You've got to have the consistency, the clarity, the continuity and the certainty of decision-making, the four Cs that we identified. So while well, the report had 129 recommendations, and I'll come on to them what the government responded to that in a moment, the core narrative of the Mission Zero report uh, was one that net zero is the economic opportunity of this decade, if not our generation. Uh, and it tried part one of the, of the report frame net zero, not just as an environmental policy tool, but principally the economic growth tool that we must you know, seize with both hands, otherwise we are in a net zero race, and other countries such as the US or Germany will, will steal a march on us. Secondly, the, the report set out 10 10-year 10 missions to really sort of lean into that point around business and industry, It know, needs long-term certainty. So, how can we build out similar approaches that we've seen in the States with the Inflation Reduction Act and the 45Q tax credit being available till 2033? Or the kfw in in germany for energy insulation or their hydrogen program being available for 10 years in the uk we've been bedeviled by this 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 treasury spending review which only allows spending commitments for up to about three years Uh, If that And and trying to break out of that cycle is is absolutely vital because then we can lower the learning cost of technologies. We can build out the supply chains. We can actually then just bring down the cost of the transition if we can overcome the barriers and provide a framework by which we can operate. And that could be cross-party. So with being independent, I tried to make sure I met with all political parties, Labour, Conservatives, SNP, Welsh Government, Liberal Democrats, Green, to try to bring everyone together around the table to say, what are our shared solutions to the common barriers that we face? Um, and then getting around the country, because actually, I found that people are getting on with net zero. Uh, and that is a, another part of the report. The economic reality of net zero is it's here to stay. It doesn't matter what politicians say or do. You know The rest of the world is moving on and investments are being made. And we can either have that investment coming to the UK or it'll go elsewhere. But actually, going around the country, we went to every devolved nation. We went to every region of England. I held fifty-two roundtables with every single sector. Um, was that you know, yes, you know, business needs certainty and clarity, but also that this is a moment in time by which we can sort of map out local opportunities. And I think what really struck me is actually a lot of the work is already being done, uh, not least in regional devolved administrations in certain local authorities. And we need to let them get on with the job. It's actually central government's holding people back because the planning regulations aren't fit for purpose. So that narrative of, yes, we need government to act, but also we need government to provide the, uh, the ecosystem and then get out of the way and stop interfering was also uh, as relevant for the report. And I'm hoping to take the report to COP28 actually, uh, later on in the month, because uh, the, book, the the report is actually coming out as a book it's being published by Biteback uh, as a trade paperback. And the idea is I want other countries to try to consider doing a similar audit on the back of the global stock take. Every country is going to have to look at their, their commitments they've made and see how close they are to meeting them. And this will be, I think, a great opportunity for the UK to demonstrate to other countries, why not run your own net zero review, meet with industries and businesses, meet with communities to discuss what are the barriers and how can you create the policies that will turbocharge uh, a net zero transition?
1: Was there anything in the the responses that you got that that wasn't expected or, or was it the case, you know, because you've been involved in this space for a while. Was it more that you felt, no, no, I'm just I'm really showing that there is this strength of feeling that we already know. But here's the evidence. Was it more here's the evidence or was it more, you know, yes, actually, there were some surprises in what people were pushing for.
0: Well, I think what you can take both parts of that question is quite a lot of people were pushing for more data and evidence that isn't being collected at the moment. So uh, actually... Local authorities can't really benchmark their net zero commitments with one another. There's not the ability to, to, to really sort of drill down on your scope ones to three emissions at a local and regional level. And providing obviously individuals also with the tools to be able to know how to make more informed choices. That was a constant theme throughout the review, that people don't have enough information at their fingertips yet to be able to really sort of move swiftly. Um, and then I think also, you know, we went around the country, we went to various different sites and, and trying to get a sense of prioritisation. I think the real challenge with net zero is everyone, you know, there's lots of vested interests and sectors who all want to say, you know, listen to us because we've got the solution or, you know, we must be part of the And everyone must be part of the, the, the challenge towards net zero. But we do need to recognise there are certain areas where we can move a, a lot further faster in the next seven years if we paid more attention to them. So one area being industrial decarbonisation. You know, I was really struck, Yeah, you know, because I had the opportunity of getting around the country i got invited to various industrial sites in a way that yeah they're hidden hidden away you don't often see them you know you get these like individual stacks giving out five million tons of co2 which is like the equivalent of the whole sort of like town next to it but yeah there's no proper investment structures or plans for how we you know deliver on dispersed industrial sites uh, and I sort of felt that you know one of the statistics in the Net Zero Review was I think eight percent of all businesses, obviously mainly industry, are responsible for eighty percent of the UK's gas use. Just goes to show if we can sort of really you know act on the areas that we know are are of core concern, we could move further faster.
1: Yeah, I think that's ah uh, uh, to what the common kind of common things that we hear from either UK. Based companies or companies with UK assets in their, you know, industrial portfolios, the the things we hear the most are that people love the kind of the range of incentives and some of the the decarbonisation funding that has been in evidence. But where does it go next? You know, yeah. it's great that we have that and it has spurred activity and it's brought investors to discussions that probably wouldn't have come right, you know, come there yet. But there's no follow up. There's no sense that okay, but there, there's got to be another plan. So yeah. that, that's something we hear a lot. They, I think your point on um, policy needed for those sites that are not near um, one of the natural cluster points. Uh, also something we hear an awful lot. You know, particularly in aggregates and cement, where they're just they're they're based yeah. where they're deposits. They're not based, you know, near a refinery that happens to be on the coast. So. That's something we hear. And then the final piece, I suppose, that we hear is about price of electricity, um, whether that's gas or other. But anyway, sorry, I jumped in and sort of interrupted your flow. But so you're talking about what you had been able to see for yourself. How I mean, out of those 129 recommendations, and that's a, a lot, isn't it? That's a lot to to be putting on the table. What which are the ones that for you feel like just if we don't do this? we're not going to achieve our goal? Were there some that really felt like those core blockers that could yeah, really inhibit our options deliver?
0: So what did, out of the 129 recommendations, I, we also created a 25 by 2025 framework to try to prioritise some recommendations to happen. You know, And every recommendation was um, also given a date by which it should happen. Uh, and actually the government accepted about 100 of the 129 a uh, 70 of them they agreed with the time scale so i was pretty pleased with with the response though fortunately some of the the major sort of uh, uh recommendations i wish to have seen you yeah, know weren't taken forward so i think one of the core recommendations is obviously how do you have a coordinating function for all the different things that are going on across departments how do you hold um departments to account so i wanted to create an office for net zero delivery um to be able to really focus on the fact that if you're a local authority, you're having to go to the Department of Transport, you're having to go to you know, Department of DEFRA, you're having to go to Department of Local Government for, for, for endless pots of funding that's often very short-termist. And and so reforming this this view by which you know we would actually have a, a plan, a roadmap set out. And actually, again, getting net zero away from Whitehall is really important. So having that Office of Net Zero delivery was something I really wanted to as a core priority. There are other things like the net zero duty on off gem, which is now happening. That's I campaign for that after the net zero review uh, is now in place uh, due to the Energy Act, which has been a great campaign success, even though that yeah, the government refused to do it to start with so i think and then also planning i think yeah we, our planning system is not fit for a net zero purpose and obviously we've got the consultation on the nppf uh, and a number of uh, yeah that that's, that's underpinning you know, everything really if we uh, if we can't sort of you know, have our planning system in a, in a in a streamlined way that recognizes climate considerations must be a priority then we're not going to get anywhere in the longer term uh, so i think those three for me are sort of yeah you know, we're, were core
1: yeah, the, the the good news, bad news on that last point is I I don't think any country feels their planning and permitting is is set up in a way that deals with the kind of pressing timelines and the, the need to act. But yeah, it, it is of course something that particularly as big infrastructure starts to come into its planning phases is 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 more and more a conversation. I just want to take this opportunity to thank our production partner and sponsor, Jano Media, for their support in delivering the Decarb Connect podcast. Over the last few years, they've helped us to facilitate great conversations that connect us with our audience. And their skills and expertise mean that we get to concentrate exclusively on generating the content, the conversations that engage, inform and inspire. So so shifting gears a little bit. I feel like in, in the UK, quite a lot of the discussion recently has been more about the consumer side, as you've said, about net zero. How How can we reframe that for the public discussion? I, I, or is it just not really, do you think kind of getting the public to focus on industry and the net zero opportunity around it, is that just not a discussion that's easy to do at, at that level? What, what's your sense of that? Because, I mean, bluntly, your point about Industry is where we move the needle. I mean, that's why we founded Decarb Connect. You know, this is the this is the space where we can all have the most impact with the money that we spend on it. So what's your sense of bringing that to a more public discussion?
0: Well, I think you know, individuals and households as consumers of goods that are being produced by industry do have a strong role to play in advocacy and you know ensuring that there is sort of greater corporate responsibility around Committing to net zero, and I think that's only going to grow. Yeah, you know, already we're seeing in the food and drink sector, uh, you know, those who are making choices around uh, low carbon uh, products, uh, and that I think will only be sort of extended. I mean, I think there will, you know, also be sort of the state, interstate sort of mechanisms like a Cbam, like the emissions trading scheme. But you know, nevertheless, there will be products, and I think there's only going to grow and grow, particularly if we have corporate definitions of net zero that become better regulated, where people will want to say this is a net zero product and they want to be able to work out through the supply chain that they have bought low carbon materials. And I'm a great believer, you know, while I'm still a conservative, is that you know net zero will succeed in spite of government because the market mechanisms that have been created now uh, mean that is that the incentives are now there in order to produce um, net zero goods and materials. And so I worry for those industries and uh, obviously energy intensives that risk becoming stranded assets if alternatives are being produced. And at the moment, there aren't any alternatives to cement or, or steel, but that's coming really quickly down the tracks, really quickly. So recognizing that the policy support we've got to provide, you know, principally also it, it's a bit of a circle because people will look at industry or they look at decisions like Port Talbot, which was very badly handled. You know, actually, if it wasn't for um, the green investment, we would have lost all six thousand jobs. Instead of actually, we've kept, we've protected half of the jobs by focusing on on green steel and and decarbonizing for the future. So, that there are job creation opportunities? We can never compete with China for low quality steel and materials. So we're you know the future of a British industry requires us to focus on quality and aligning quality with uh, low carbon product standards and net zero standards and And that's where I see things going for the future. It's just making sure that SMEs and other industries you know recognize that this is coming down the tracks and 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 don't leave it too late. I think is 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 the key. But this is being driven by individual choices, consumer choices, which is driving investment decisions. Uh, which obviously you know potentially then is it, it, a is decision between whether a company uh, stays open for business or not.
1: Mm. Okay, well thank thanks for that. We'll we'll move now shift into talking about this concept of a green special relationship. And I just want to start that with a with a question about the Inflation Reduction Act, which, depending who you talk to, is either this huge threat or a massive boost. And <laughs> you know, it's obviously caused, it's actually generated a lot more strong feeling than I perhaps un, perhaps understood it would when it first came out. Starting with that, you know, how how should we? React to it or or work with it. Uh, we, the UK, I mean, what's what what was your um, sense of it? And then we'll talk a little about your your idea for this concept of a green special relationship as well.
0: Yeah. So so my uh, reaction to the Inflation Reduction Act was any money that's being spent on climate technologies globally is a, is is a a very good thing. So three hundred and seventy billion dollars, which potentially you know, will be a lot larger than that. Uh, has demonstrated that a renewed manufacturing renaissance in, in, in green industries, which is, is fantastic. I mean, the, the challenge then is is how do you respond to that as the UK? For myself, I know that the UK, regardless of what happens at a political level, remains leaders when it comes to certain technologies, such as CCUS, hydrogen, nuclear, by virtue of the people who work in these industries. And I've long believed that regardless of you know what happens in the US, they're still so far behind when it comes to their regulatory um, structures and frameworks you know, around energy efficiency buildings that they look to the UK and they want to partner with the UK. Um, and so as far as I'm concerned, you know if the money goes to the US and the US wants to then invest into the UK, it's a win-win for both situations. If it creates 60,000 jobs in one sector and it creates 6,000 jobs in the UK, then I think we should take that win. Uh, the challenge is, if you start claiming that uh, this is protectionist, um, every piece of legislation in some way in any parliament has to have compromises in order to get through. And that was simply the case for the, this particular piece of legislation. They wouldn't have got through the floor of the House in, in Washington otherwise. Um, and you can bleat on about it, saying, oh, we're going to go to the World Trade uh, Organization and and They'll be taken to court, but that would be 10 years time, 12 years time before any resolutions passed by which time the money will be spent. So as far as I'm concerned, we should get behind trying to create sector by sector, technology by technology partnerships between the US uh, and the UK, which is why I went to Washington quite in March earlier this year, gave a speech at the Atlantic Council. Calling for a green special relationship, highlighting that you know as democratic-leaning nations who have similar concerns around critical minerals and supply chain issues, that we need to work closer together and share our human capital resource above all, uh, in order to deliver the transition. Everyone will benefit. You know, the rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and from that, actually, we've we've seen what I thought might happen. Which is now that the US is looking for carve outs, yeah, and they're offering the UK potentially carve outs around electric vehicle batteries and, and and other investments, so to ensure that UK goods can be sold in the US without fear of of penalty. So I hope that this will be something will continue to grow. Yeah, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and the, and the financial mechanisms are around for a long time. Um, so the UK needs to really focus on trying to to land, I think, some of these opportunities. And I've seen it already. You know, In Bristol, my hometown, where I represent my constituencies nearby, the city, the Bristol City Council um, signed a $424 million investment from the Boston company Amoresco into decarbonising their heat district network system. So, you know, it can be done. And I think, you know, we should be looking to see what in- inward investment opportunities. You know, the net zero Review pointed to up to a trillion Uh, pounds that could come our way you know if we are willing to make those collaborative opportunities uh, realizable
1: do you think there are opportunities for us on a a state by state level or does it always need to be you know this might be naivety on my part i don't know is it possible to you know to go direct to something you know that the the economy this of california is obviously a huge huge opportunity for us and is obviously driving forward a lot of uh climate tech, climate project, climate investment. Can, can we negotiate or make deals at that level?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think we, we don't need a trade deal with the US to, 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 to wait for this to now sort of take place. And to, I think you know, a number of opportunities that the UK provides can be framed around how we work in partnership so that we look for comparative advantage. Uh, and identifying those companies that you know, potentially want to be part of the UK's ecosystem is really important. So one example is, say, like Commonwealth Fusion, a uh, Boston-based company, is actually relocating to the UK. Is, the the narrative is actually opposite of the Inflation Reduction Act because we've created the first world's first fusion regulation separate from fission. Uh, and it's provided long-term certainty over potential uh, regulatory sandboxes and innovation uh, on fusion. So actually, we're seeing people are wanting to come to UK because we're doing the right thing. Uh, and I think having that ability of working out which are the specific technologies, which are the specific industries where we can partner and add value. As I said, the market will welcome that, uh, and it's, it's 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 recognizing what are the levers within the within the market that the the UK should be using rather than pushing back against.
1: OK, well, last last big question then is has got to be about COP. It's hurtling up towards us. And that we are now uh, on the 2nd of November recording this, so it's just a couple of weeks away. Um, so obviously every COP gets uh, kind of pre-event criticism and pre-event dissection in the media. This one uh, clearly has it because of where it's located and, and the fact that the ad knock group is so closely associated with it. What, what's your sense of the setup of the meeting and these criticisms? Do you think it will affect outcomes?
0: So I think I've just read a history of COPs 1 to 27 from sort of, I did the Senior Fellowship at Harvard and I sort of published this 200 page sort of booklet, making recommendations on where COPs should go for the future. Um, because actually this COP, regardless of the personalities and the host country, is is a critical one it as i said earlier it's it's part of this sort of global stock take uh so that we're looking uh at you know five years on from when sort of the countries first had to produce their ndcs in 2018 to 2023 we'll now see whether countries have matched their ambition with the commitments that they said they were going to deliver or not and and there's not really a mechanism in the paris agreement to sort of say what next And this is a real sort of fork in the road moment, because we've spent 27 years of COPs negotiating a final text, which was sort of agreed finally with the loss and damage fund uh, in Egypt last year. But we've got to move on now. Yeah, everyone agrees we need to take action. That's the text. The thing now is what do we do about delivery and implementation and and how do we create mechanisms by which we can hold countries to account on this? um and that's that's what sort of this cop's going to be around about i think otherwise we'll sort of lose momentum uh, and obviously then there's some target pledges that are beginning to emerge you know it, it's interesting how you know everyone arrives at cop with their own agendas um but obviously the us and germany have tried to work to make sure this cop is a success regardless of the oil and gas petrostate narrative so the trebling of renewable uh power globally by 2030 looks like sort of being landed, and and we have to watch out for that. Doubling of energy efficiency measures globally, you know, again, to watch closely uh, for that. 75% reduction in methane emissions. We know that methane is 82%, 82 times, sorry, uh, more warming than CO2. So the more we can do on methane, the more headroom potentially we buy ourselves in the the future. Um, So these are all commitments where I'm hoping to see action. Uh, whether the loss and damage fund and, you know, the, the other £100 billion climate finance for the global south comes to pass, I'm not sure. Um, obviously, you know, there is a key question around whether we get phase a phase down of coal and oil and gas, you know, what's going to happen there? Obviously, I'd like to be able to see a phase out um, coming down the tracks. But I think that those those key commitments are sort of already now, you know, aligning to, to be sort of part of the COP success. Some I mean, COPs now are too big to fail, really. After Copenhagen, yeah, people are terrified that we'll have this sort of event and then it will sort of, you know, nothing will happen. So, yeah, we will see some commitments. Um, I think that the challenge is now people are thinking about, you know, what do we do going into Brazil in COP30? Because obviously what the commitments people make at COP28 will be two years time between then and obviously what then they deliver. But it, it really is a, a key moment around maintaining progress.
1: And you'll be there um, to, as you said, at the beginning of this recording, sort of really talking about the value of a, a net zero audit, this kind of review approach that you've taken. Is that is that the kind of primary
0: message? That's right. Yeah. So I will be I'm doing you know, a number of events. Uh, I'm there for the first week, first week of December. And I'm trying to, as I said, aside from the events I've agreed to do, really sort of push the net zero review as something other countries could emulate, uh, potentially sort of to take forwards as part of their response to the global uh, stock take. Uh, and so and I've got another two other reports coming out at the time, one on on industry, where I'll be sort of hopefully making some things, uh, policy recommendations on industrial decarbonisation uh, and one on new buildings as well. So I'm I'm very much committed to sort of taking forward sort of policy uh, recommendations as well. But yeah, I, the review is coming out as a, as trade paperback. Uh, on the 28th of November, uh, and I'm keen to, to try and sell that message globally.
1: And then last, last question, what's next for you? So obviously this year has been dominated by that net zero review and then not just the completion and publishing of it, but really spreading the word and the key messages of it. What's next for you in this space?
0: Well, yeah, it's a good question. Obviously I'm, the general election is coming down the tracks in 2024. Um, I'm not standing because I'm not able to stand. Um, my seat is being abolished, so I have nowhere to go. Uh, and that was my home seat. And I didn't really sort of see a, a way by which I could stand anywhere else in the country. Um, I've got three young kids. And for family reasons, I thought, well, I've had 13, 14 years by then. And we've had a good innings and and I achieved a lot what I wanted to achieve. Um, but now I sort of feel with net zero having been sort of established now is the opportunity to try to yeah you know, be involved in climate policy outside of, of parliament so i think that my intention is is both to focus on policy and i've got uh, a couple of things like i've become a professor at the university of bath and uh, i'm hoping to you know maintain my focus maybe in business or industry uh, on net zero so yeah i think sort of watch this space but i'm i'm definitely not leaving the pitch when it comes to focusing on decarbonisation and, and achieving our climate goals for 2050.
1: Well, Chris, good, good luck with whatever comes next. Thank you for walking us through the Net Zero review. I'll make sure that in the show notes that we provide some links for that. So whether you're UK based or elsewhere, and you want to have a look at something that could provide a template for your own thinking, we can um, point you towards that. But again, Chris, thank you so much Great conversation, and uh, yeah, interested to see what comes next for you.
0: No, thanks very much, Alex. As I said, yeah, net zero is the future, and it'll be my future too.
1: At Jano Media, we recognise that great content has the power to create impactful and positive change for lives and society. Whether that's video, live streams, photography, or podcasts, partnering with us will enable you to harness the power of content to engage inform and inspire reach out to us today